1: The Pharmacy Podcast Network has dedicated a series called The Pharmacist and Physician Opioid Collaborative. This is pharmacists and physicians collaborating, talking about proper and humane usage of pain management strategies and the usage of opioids and evidence-based medication therapy management practice and being able to, over periods of experience, in the field of pain management apply that knowledge to sharing with each other and to really driving better long-term solutions sometimes you know maybe even less drugs involved who knows i mean that's not up for me to to talk about i really i really want to bring on experts in the field that's why today's interview is so important in this series to continue to gather leadership in the uh, healthcare field for pain management, Dr. Amy Baxter. Uh, She's a clinical associate professor at Augusta University Medical College of Georgia and the founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs in Atlanta, Georgia. Her links will be in the show notes. I'm so excited to have you here, Dr. Baxter. Welcome.
0: Todd, it's been a long time waiting and I'm so excited to finally get to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you. And the pharmacists that are listening in right now and pharmacy owners that are listening in right now, uh, this is an important subject because so many of their patients um, are suffering with some type of pain. Um, sometimes um, it, it involves opioid usage um, disorders or um, or the proper management of of pain management under using opioids. So, it's kind of like a, it's a huge sandbox to to be jumping into. So before we start into some of the questions that I have that kind of fold into this series focus, I want the, the listeners to know a little bit about what you're working on right now and uh, in your background.
0: Sure. Well, I was trained as a pediatrician. Then I did a child abuse fellowship, then an emergency fellowship, then a clinical research fellowship. Then my husband told me to get a real job. So I've practiced pediatric emergency medicine for about 15 years before finally, as I'll tell you, deciding to quit practice to focus on opioid reduction. But the majority of the last 10 years of my clinical practice was in procedural sedation. So I have written book chapters and lectured nationally and internationally on specifically procedural pain management, but also pain management in general. I was a child of the 90s, um, trained in the 90s, I guess a child of the 70s. But so I was raised on Purdue Pharma, lasagna lunches, and hearing that opioids were not addictive. So I taught that for the 2000 to 2010, and I practiced procedural sedation. So I gave a lot of ketamine, fentanyl, morphine, uh, dexanatomidine, and I still would. I really think those are appropriate uses for it. But over the course of the following decades, began realizing that, first of all, what we were doing, um, there really were different phenotypes of people that we were sedating that responded differently to opioids than others. And the The penny dropped when a colleague of mine used a needle pain device, Buzzy, that I had invented to block pain from needles for a total knee replacement because he was in opioid recovery for 20 years and had lost everything. And so he didn't even want tram at all after his total knee. So when he used Buzzy for his total knee replacement and it was effective, that was when I decided it was probably a good time to quit practicing, get a grant, learn more about the mechanisms of non Pharmacologic pain management and that's where we are now.
1: That is exciting. Uh, so so excited to have someone that, that has seen it through. Also you have that entrepreneurial background, what I think is um, it's an emerging trend in the pharmacy sector. We have so many pharmacists who are leaving their uh, chain environments, their community environments. They're going into to digging down into the needs for seniors or specialty disease states. Pharmacogenomics and really becoming laser focused on those uh, on those issues. Pain management is one of those um, placements and, and conditions and the the chronic ongoing uh, horrid experiences that um, that patients are going through with pain. Pharmacists have to be there, and and people like yourself have to be able to train, uh, educate and then ongoing collaboration for specific instances and in, in what they're going through. Can you kind of give our pharmacist a, an, an overview of the technology that you've invented and how that disrupts um, the normal uh, sensories of, of, of pain?
0: Sure. And, and I'm going to start by framing this and saying that pharmacists are really going to be the key to health management going forward because our, doctors are getting harder to get into see because the cost of going to an urgent care is getting more and the people who are repeatedly going back for their healthcare are asking their pharmacists for advice so i think that It's not just that pharmacists are the ones who are giving out the medications, but pharmacists are squarely planted amidst a whole lot of non-pharmacologic options. You're in a pharmacy, you're in a grocery store, you're in a place where so much of what we're learning about how pain works can be addressed in non-drug ways, and they're all around the pharmacist. So both because this is the primary point of contact, but also because of the context of other options. And and certainly the way we're changing in my technology is related to what the NIH called one of their bold predictions. So the NIH put out a 2021 to 2025 list of bold predictions, and number 31 was that non-pharmacologic pain management will be better understood and will become a cornerstone of pain management going forward, replacing and being an adjunct to pharmaceuticals. So I, I really think where we're coming to is that people are regarding devices as therapeutics, whereas it used to be a therapeutic was something that had a molecular pattern that was patented. What I'm doing, it came from the realization back in 2022 that if you wanted to block pain for vaccinations, you could do the same kind of technique as bumping an elbow and rubbing it, or if you bang your hand with a hammer, you shake it, that the motion motion and pressure together could short circuit pain. So this is sometimes called gate control. It's a lot more sophisticated than TENS units that have been tried for a lot of times. TENS units of transcutaneous electrical stimulation, but what the body's designed for is to take mechanical stimulation, rubbing, stretching, pushing, moving, and use that to block out pain my technology is combining the frequencies that have been discovered in the last 7 years to be uniquely effective at triggering this pain reduction and putting them into small devices that people can put where the pain is or within the der- the nerve pattern the dermatome so proximal to where the pain is and use that to block pain so in a nutshell what we're doing what we were funded to do the needle pain device and in covid we kind of moved back away from opioids toward the the buzzy for vaccination pain. But the premise is if you've got the right frequency, then you can short circuit pain. And we're doing that for the low back now using and experimenting with a, a grant from the National Institute of Drug Abuse drug addiction, um, using a grant to look at three different frequencies that are used in tandem and creating harmonics to block different kinds of pain, whether it's the bony low back pain or muscular or uh, or nerve. So there's a lot of information right there. Uh, I'll let you parse that.
1: Well, I know that Buzzy was originally created for the pediatric environment for those um, children that were uh, very you know, nervous about needles and crying and all of a sudden Buzzy comes up, it's this device that looks like a bee, it, it grabs their attention because it's very cartoon and oriented to you know, a, a child wanting to maybe even play with it. And the next thing you know, the shot's in, it's out, and they didn't even probably know it happened. That's brilliant to be able to extend that into the adult world, as well as the more intense pain that, that, that people are experiencing. What about that transition from pediatrics to um, you know, u- usage for a multitude of, of, of pain issues? Talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is really relevant for entrepreneurs that the audience that you think your product is for is not the largest or even the best audience for it. And so customer discovery was not a part of my lexicon when I was in medical school. This is not what you learn. But what we were hearing from people was that these people using Buzzy for their biologics, for their Humira, for their injections, who also had knee pain, arthritis pain, they were saying, you know, we're using Buzzy on our hip and it's really helpful. We're using Buzzy for this and it's really helpful. And I had named my my company at the time, I'd named our URL buzzy could not even imagine that it was useful for IV access, let alone, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, that's nice. I mean, it, you know, it makes sense. Pain is pain. So what I have now come to understand is that, first of all, pain's transmitted on a delta nerve. It's a sharp, fast, small web that covers the skin. And... It is easily blocked out by position sense. So the Pacinian corpuscle. It's the one that does where your body is in space. And because we have to have such finite control over it, it has an extremely high frequency of response. So if you don't need to know that something's changing quickly, like light touch or stretching, those respond to really low frequency stimuli. But if you need to know precisely where your finger is when you're playing a chord on an instrument, then you need a very high frequency of response. So in order to get this position sense nerve to respond, it needs to be between about 180 and 250 Hertz. And that is part of why the TENS units don't deliver as reliably on the promise of a lot of the clinical research. Because TENS units often don't even, they only go up to 120 hertz, so they're not triggering the Pacinian corpuscle, so they're not getting the major benefit out of pain blocking. So again, same concept as bumping an elbow, you rub it to stop pain, or you bang your hand with a hammer and you shake it to get the pain to go away. What Buzzy was doing was stimulating at 200 hertz these Pacinian corpuscles to block the sensation. So one of the big struggles I'm having right now, Todd, is there are 75 papers demonstrating significant pain relief with Buzzy for needles or for IV access or for for a variety of things, but people don't understand that knee pain uses exactly the same A-delta nerve. That was really where the, the, the light bulb went on was when my colleague used this for his knee pain you know, and I knew that our our team would use it when we when we had an injury or when our kids had injuries or when, you know, for tendinitis, we were putting it on for that. But it didn't really occur to me until his issue that this could be a way to block opioid use or to avoid it entirely. So that started me on this journey to understand when are opioids prescribed How addictive are they? When does addiction start? Three days. Um, All of that kind of thing. But the the technology really was from a lack of understanding that doesn't matter what kind of pain you're talking about. If it's acute, sharp pain, it's the same nerve. It's the same mechanism to stop it.
1: So I'm glad you've staged this part of our discussion, Amy, because I'm going to bring us back to the controversy that's in place. And this is providers that know that their patients are going through pain. Pharmacists that see patients um, go from um, a surgery, uh, they get their first dose of some type of pain control medication. And we live in a, in a, in a strange society, especially in the United States and America, unlike Eastern cultures, where we want a fast fix. We want to take a pill and we want that to the pain to just go away. Um, They came out with the pain scale that said, is your pain from a scale from one to 10? You know, if, if there's people out there that will not answer that honestly, because they just want the pain to go away, therefore they want the best medication um, for, for exactly that. I, and I think that scale one to 10, my, Six might be your eight, or my three might be your seven, and who knows, because I think pain is subjective in man- in many ways. Then there's the world of absorption. There's the world of efficacy, where some people are breaking down and absorbing and metabolizing the opioid components and medications much faster and or differently than other people, and nobody's running PGX tests, as they should be, in my opinion, to assure that Opioids are even going to work as they should. And then there's innovators like you, Amy, that uh, are setting the standards for what future pain management will be. But what I'm bringing us back to, and the reason why I prefaced all of that based on your staging, is to come back to the original discussion. And that is, you know, we have the CDC guidelines and opioid prescribing and the effect that it has on clinical practice, and more importantly, the impact and effect that it has on our patients who are going through, um, you know, horrible pain situations. Uh, in our last episode, uh, Bev, um, you know, came on and, and she's the the vice president of Don't Punish Pain Rally and the VP of the doctor patient forum. And we wanted to get the patient's view, someone who has Crohn's, Crohn's disease and is going through pain themselves, how they feel that during the process and during the gathering of data, evidence-based data that now becomes opioid prescribing guidelines, the patient has never been consulted. They've never been asked, hey, from a scientific perspective, let's take you through the study and let's see how this parallels with, with you experienced. And it's almost like a bunch of smart, intelligent doctors and pharmacists and policy developers go out there and write a bunch of guidelines for the CDC, hand them over, it's rubber stamped and now the patient is on the outside looking in, saying, I'm still in pain. I'm being told that I'm a criminal because I want, you know, my next, you know, dosage of, of opioids that maybe I am addicted to, maybe I'm not addicted to, but who knows? There's a lot to unpack and what I'm gonna ask you, and that is what do we do in the stat with the status quo? What do we do in the situation today to improve conditions of of pain management for our patients that are truly going through some horrific things, but they've been ignored because of the, in my opinion, the rubber stamp of of policy that's been developed by, by today's CDC guidelines.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm in Atlanta. So I know people in the CDC and I assure you it is not a rubber stamp and it is not a a flippant or a trivial process by which these understandings are arrived at. That said, I've also had to educate people who are in the CDC saying, oh my God, if you just tell people to immediately reduce their opioids by that amount, you're going to have people committing suicide. That's not the way to do it. I think the the place to unpack this is really three steps and it starts before you get to the question that you're asking. I've written a lot of opinion pieces on what we need to do to solve the opioid crisis. And the first thing is we need to pay for options. When I was at the first help and addiction long-term HEAL meeting that was held in Bethesda, the first time that all of the scientists who were funded to help deal with the opioid crisis came together, the one patient that they had on the panel said, what I want is options. So What we first need to do is set the stage for what pain management really can be and when people get addicted. And so, and I can give you the links for all of these pieces. But I think the first thing to know is that what we understand now is, as you said, about 15% of people are rapid metabolizers. They are going to get a huge rush from the opioid. It's going to be gone before they're allowed to take another one. Now, this is also the group of people who is most at risk of of overdosing and dying, because if they take too much and it hits their system too fast, then it depresses the respiratory drive or if they're on benzodiazepines. So those people, as you said, we need to identify them. We need to know what the genotypes are. And so the pharmacogenomics, and and that's going to impact about 15% of people. So before someone's prescribed opioids, they really should know whether they're a rapid metabolizer. Does this mean they shouldn't get them at all? No, of course not. But I do, the, the research is pretty clear now that at three days of home opioid use, that's when the risk of addiction starts. So we, a great study that was done on Anthem's data looking at people getting their wisdom teeth out. So young adults getting their third molars removed. Oral surgeons are the worst offenders, demonstrably for overriding Um, opioid prescriptions, on average, an oral surgeon will write for 30 tablets for something that works, uh, is better treated with ibuprofen. Multiple different studies show that. So when you're looking at when to prescribe opioids, if it's something that is not actually going to benefit from opioids, don't prescribe them at all. So this initial approach should be understanding and educating on when opioids really are not the good stuff. They're not helpful. Second thing is options. So right now, there is something called the No Pain Act, which proposes paying for anything that has been shown to reduce opioids. I think that that is too narrow. I think what we need to do is have a budget for someone who is going into a surgery, and that budget should take into account the likelihood of opioid use disorder after a year for people doing that surgery. So if you do not take opioids or if you limit it to three days, then you've got $200, $400 or $600 to spend on other options that are helpful. Third thing is, just as you said, um, as we in the U.S. are used to instant gratification, whether it's looking at our phone to know that Scrabble word or looking to find out um, who played what character on what TV role that you just can't remember, we're used to having something done quickly. and what we need to set the stage for is that people need to plan when they're going into a pain situation. One of the things that I did over COVID was really look at all of the evidence based non drug options. Thing is, they don't have a lobby. I mean, you probably know this, but magnesium is a four way opioid reducer it's an nmda blocker so it stops the ramp up it is a smooth muscle relaxer it's a neuro anti-inflammatory and it's a general anti-inflammatory it reduces opioid use by a third intraoperatively but if you can't get that paid for so many people can't afford it it's on the shelves in the pharmacy it's a fantastic option and the side effects are basically lowering your blood pressure oh no oh please don't throw me in that briar patch (laughs) But that kind of thing. So to, to sum up, I think here's the thing. If we can stop addiction on the, on the foreside by making sure people know what their risks are, both in time and pharmacogenomics, if we can sponsor and fund and educate on some of the non-drug options that can be adjuncts so that we can get people to, who are at risk to not take opioids in the first place, that's where we need to be now. To actually answer your question, Um, if people are on stable amounts of opioids, yes, they may be on high enough doses that they're at risk if they miss a couple doses and then all of a sudden take too much. Um, But those are not the people who are the problem. And, And I am not concerned about any stable amount of opioid. If somebody wants to wean then you're going to need to supplant their pain management for reasons that we can talk about that we're understanding with brain physiology but um but i th- I do think that the the place to be putting all of our regulations and efforts here is on prescribing up front and giving people options up front before they get addicted to the medications.
1: Thank you for that, and that's kind of where I wanted you to go is is understanding you know, where we're at today and what to do in the meantime, especially when there are pharmacists out there who want to dig in to the condition. They want to have an ability to, to suggest adjustments to the existing treatment, maybe even go through a titration period with the, with the um, person suffering with pain that expresses to their pharmacist, Hey, I want to get off of my medications. I want to get off of opioids. Uh, How do we do that? And, and still, have that, you know, pain relief. And I think there's a lot of education that can come from that community pharmacist, either through pamphlets or, or maybe a pain forum or something where they bring in a, you know, 20, 30 people at a time and, and review uh, pain management options. I think the education comes in from research like yours, Amy, that says to these people, Hey, there are new technologies out there. There's, you know, obviously there might be funding issues in order to get you this technology but i think the testimony coming from physicians and pharmacists together could help to accelerate sources of funding medicaid programs medicare part uh is it b or d that is device driven you know i just got back from the vive the vive conference was in miami on um on on march 7th or 8th i believe it was so many conferences and, um, they had a digital therapeutics, um, you know, presentation about how physicians, pharmacists, nurse practitioners are, are leveraging digital therapeutics. And this is exactly where Buzzy fits. It's, it's a, you know, it's a prescribed, it could become a prescribed technology in place of a prescribed, um, you know, molecular therapeutic, like you just said earlier. And that's exciting for me. It's exciting for me to, to share this with people like um, Dr. Uh, William Amarque, Amarque, who who he has knowledge of sickle cell disease patients and managing pain for specifically um, those people going through pain, and and I I think what I'm hearing from you, Amy, and I, I'd love you to to hear from you on on this is this technology could be used for a multitude of things to get people off of medications that can become addictive. And I think that needs to be part of new policies that are being developed from organizations like um, our CDC guidelines.
0: Yeah, so, so here's the problem, Todd. I think that being oriented to pharmaceuticals has tricked us into a multiple choice, single answer paradigm. I think that when we're in medical school, we are tested with multiple choice questions um, that have one answer. We are taught about dermatologic symptoms based on pharmaceuticals that cause these sequelae, these after effects. And and we are taught how to read statistics and read medical papers based on pharmaceutical trials. So we've been suborned to this one one problem, one answer paradigm. And while so buzzy will never be covered i've also learned so much about how the medical device industry works buzzy will never be covered because the centers for medicaid and medicare do not think that needle pain matters and it's not under their uh and it doesn't matter as much for for older people and so all that all cms cares about is what's going to work for seniors that is what the their mandate is so um until the people born in 1985 who were sensitized to needles get to be seniors cms will never pay for buzzy vibracool though we are actually applying for a hixfix code for because vibracool is shaped to be a dme device that can be slid under braces that can be put on shoulders put on the neck put on any place that hurts to change the pain signal and to actually remodel the tendons, and the nerves that are pulling and causing pain. But what we need to do is not have this concept of, oh, you know, here's mechanical stimulation using 200 Hertz is what we need to be doing for pain instead. We have to get out of this mindset that there's one answer and instead realize that pain is personal and that pain is not what's happening on your body and it's not even what's happening um, on the the mu receptors where the opioids hit. Pain is your brain's opinion of how safe you are. So you have to deal with the physiology and you have to deal with fear and you have to deal with focus. So having a multimodal approach gives people control over pain. One of the things that is, is really interesting is something called acceptance and commitment therapy. And this was something that became, uh, in vogue about 15 years ago with the idea being that for chronic pain, where you have central sensitization, people feeling more pain from an area, even though that part of the body, it doesn't have anything wrong with it on an MRI, but there's still, the brain has decided that that's a place where they need to worry about pain. So they're more sensitive, um, the therapy of accepting that there's going to be pain. And instead of rating on your one to 10 scale, how much pain you have saying, okay, um, I'm going to focus on gardening. How many times this month do I garden? I love doing this. My value is my grandchildren. How many times do I do this? By focusing on what they valued and what they wanted to do and not taking the pain medicines, they actually had better outcomes at six months we understand now in some of the the NIH research that I've been looking at, the brain changes shape with chronic pain. There is a pain matrix, which is the anterior cingulate gyrus and the insula and the thalamus and the amygdala. And there's um, in the periaqueductal gray, and all of these things are connected and they do change in healthy people versus people with chronic pain. So you can retrain the brain if you're doing the activities you love if you're not paying as much attention to the area. And if you're pushing past pain with lots of different options that make you feel like you're in control. Um, And so that's, that's a lot to bite off for someone who's used to taking a pill and not hurting for three hours, and then feeling scared for one hour. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's a really interesting, interesting way to put it. It's the it's the brain wanting to keep us safe. And therefore, it's Associating the pain with danger and boy, does that make a uh, physiological sense uh, when you describe it that way? Um, yeah. So, so
0: yeah, on our pain, on our pain workbook, so yeah you know, my, my COVID project. So we actually um, put together a workbook for people who are going to have surgery to write down the things they want to do to distract themselves. It, I've got this insight from one of my friends who had shoulder surgery. And she said, I wish my shoulder could hurt as little as it does when I'm having brunch with my friends uh, when it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm trying to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, brunch with friends is a pain reliever. It is a therapeutic. And so making a whole plan of distraction so that your brain thinks you're safe. Actually, not only reduces pain in the short term, but over the long term, it remodels your brain so you don't pay as much attention to the pain signals.
1: Wow, that's such a concept. Get out and take a walk, uh, go on a trail, get on the outside, run, exercise. You know, go for a um, you know a, a brunch, like you said, or go see a movie, or I mean that that's that's really um, it makes sense because I know. When I'm stressed, I'm stressed about getting a project done or, or work, or and I and I go play with my kids or, or hang out with my dog, it, it makes me feel better and it, re- it relieves that that stress. And I think there's an element to this to pain. I will want to hear back from some of our pharmacists who are are dealing with um, you know their their pain patients every day and the types of suggestions that they can make before implementing. Really, the totality of a new solution, which um, you know your concepts, your technology is definitely part of that. So, what's your advice to pharmacists at this stage that are in pain management and they don't have um, a magic uh, pill or structure immediately to deliver to their uh, patients with um, with the philosophies that that you're referencing today, Amy? But there is a, a segue that we have to do something different to make change. So what's your advice to these uh, pharmacists who are in pain management today?
0: So I first of all, I'm happy to give PDFs of our what works for pain book um, evidence-based. People can have it for free. They can download it and let their patients use it. I'm very happy to to donate those to the world. Uh, what I would say to the pharmacist who has a pain patient who wants to wean, first of all, many pain patients don't want to wean. They are much more anxious about having to stop what works for them. And, you know, if you've got Ehlers-Danlos, if you've got IBD, if you've got Crohn's, whatever you have, um, I can certainly understand not needing to wean if you've got something that works. But for those perhaps 10% of patients who do want to wean, then I think that the pharmacist should say, um, what, when are you, the best with your pain? What makes you the best with your pain? So if you are planning to wean, make a schedule and add things that you think will work for you. One of the, the pivotal times in my learning came from a woman named Regina Yokum, who is a child life specialist in Wisconsin. And we were talking about pain management and how something like VibraCool could be incorporated with it. And she said, look, here's the thing, pain that comes from a physiological problem, there's very few solutions, you know, there's maybe biologics for our juvenile arthritis, which is what she had, Um, there are some pills that can help, but you know, the number needed to treat with gabapentin is six, you know, there's there's a very small finite number of tricks you can try with pharmaceuticals. But when you start getting to physical solutions, and even before that, supplements, there are a lot of different things that may help people. So your magnesium, your turmeric, your curcumin. Um, then you start getting to the physical solutions, and there's a lot of per- permutations you can try, uh, pillows, stretching, yoga, activities, mechanical stimulation, like our vibration units, hot, cold, all of these types of things. When you get to mind body, when you get to aromatherapy, when you get to distraction, when you get to tease, when you get to soothing things and music there's literally an infinite number of permutations of trying all of those things out. And so I think when you look at it from a pure numeric standpoint, it's pretty easy for pharmacists to see I'm used to pulling from this really finite bag of tricks, but I'm surrounded by a store where people can get turmeric or magnesium, where people can buy Uh, pressure balls and stretching materials where people can, if it's a a target or a CVS, um, if they carried us, you know, people can get a a vibrical mechanical stimulation device, a hot cold therapy device, um, even a TENS unit, but you're surrounded by a whole lot of options. And even things like buying foods to cook that have spring onion smells, things like that, just really expanding to What makes you happy? What makes your pain the least? If you're going to be weaning, make a plan and incorporate these things that bring you joy and happiness otherwise, so your brain feels like you're safe.
1: That is cool. When I watched your uh, TED Med uh, video, um, I was inspired by some of the things that have been consistent through today's conversation, and that was nearly 10 years ago. And so that shows that you've had a concept for quite some time around a next generation way of dealing with pain management. But I wanna turn internal to each of us as human beings and suffering with maybe pain ourselves or worse yet, I think I could definitely suffer with pain before watching my daughter um, you know, suffer with pain. I think watching someone that you love is, is almost worse in some ways. But when I think of that, I think of the pharmacist out there, physicians out there, nurse practitioner, everybody that's AHCPs out there that are in charge of medical um, care, uh, they're listening today and saying, you know, this is really good stuff because it does give us pathways to serving our our people and our patients and our communities in a in a different light, without the uh, negative connotation that's attached to uh, stigma and to pain management and to opioid usage disorder and to many of the facets that. When I said it turning internal, that that is dealing with our conditions, even diabetes or hypertension or another chronic condition, by using perceptor, you know, perceptions and using, like you said, therapies, and music, um, our settings, uh, getting outdoors, uh, spending time with your your pets that that we all love so much, or our kids, or our, I mean, it's just a the dopamine that that is jettisoned into our brains because of those experiences um have an impact on our conditions and and that's why i love thinking about some of the cancer pain technologies and part of that is if we can get our patients to become hungry and start eating good food and nutritional food that is literally going to help them get back on track faster then if they're on chemotherapy, they're nauseated, they don't want to eat anything and they just start to kind of go off into a corner and, you know, and shrivel up and and not be able to really have that healing um, properties and ability. So this is very functional and holistic in ways, but it's, I feel like it's the fusion of what's already been out there, which is. The word nature. <laughs> to, to you know,
0: the hard thing is that that sounds so touchy feely. And I think that, um, but you said something that made me think of, about dopamine. So I disagree some from my colleagues who think that dopamine is a novelty stimulus. that it's a pain, redu- certainly pain reduction with dopamine release, but also I don't think it's a novelty neurotransmitter. I think it's a mastery neurotransmitter. And what's important about making a a nature or distraction or physical pain blocking um supplement pain blocking all of those kind of things i think what's important is that someone has to be keeping track and testing hypotheses for themselves because part of the dopamine release is going to come from mastery so saying take a walk do this i think is is doomed to failure because what actually works is having control over your pain. And that means you've got to keep some records. You know, that's why in our, what works for pain book, we have, um, you know, solution. How long did you use it? When did you use it in notes? So people can be keeping track because I bet you that part of why this system works is because the mastery of keeping track of your own responses to pain gives you a dopamine release from feeling in control.
1: Well, we will have a link to the PDF for everyone listening that is interested in the research that uh, Dr. Amy Baxter has put together. Uh, that link will be in the show notes. Um, your contact information, maybe through LinkedIn or or even the website, the website that that we will reference will also be um, in the in the show notes, uh, there are a uh, numerous um, articles that you've been a part of, uh, Amy, over the years. Um, I'd like to reference some of the ones that that you um, advise, and then our our listeners can follow up as well. Um, is there anything in closing that you'd like to share with our pharmacists, uh, pharmacy podcast listeners?
0: Part of what the mechanism is of VIBRACOOL is not just a two hundred hertz pain blocking, but it is that you can use it with heat or cold and cold does something called descending inhibitory control, which reduces pain everywhere from the brain saying, I don't need to pay attention with this. Heat decreases spasm and can retrain the brain that a place that you're expecting a painful signal from actually can have a soothing signal. But this overarching part of having a multimodal physical device is control is a patient puts it on and they can hear the vibrating sound. They know it's working. And so control over pain is more important than any individual modality to treat pain itself. Pharmacists are in such a good position to give their patients options. So there's always something they can try that they haven't and there's always a way that they've got hope that they can control their pain.
1: Thank you for that, Amy. And I think the element of control is is a great way to uh, wrap up the conversation. And that, feel, that makes people feel, if I'm in control and I get to um, inject something into my therapy myself, I'll learn to deal with this much long term than um, the quick fix because it's only going to last like you said for that three four six hour period and then they're going to have to go right back to where they were (laughs) and there's that period of worry and the period of fear that your brain uh, knows what's coming because it doesn't want to have to deal with that pain again whereas the the solutions that you're uh, referencing and talking about through the research that you've done is definitely about control and knowing how to and everybody, like you said, everyone's different. So if I'm using ViberCool or if I'm using uh, Buzzy or something, then I know how and when it best works for me and in the pain that I'm going through. Yeah.
0: I think pharmacists can also make a huge deal when. Someone who's a young adult with a prescription for opioids for dental work, someone who has a new prescription for opioids for a casted fracture, familiarize yourself with situations where opioids do not work as well as ibuprofen and feel empowered to suggest to your patients and your parents, you may not need to get this filled because the emphasis on opioids as the good stuff is what leads to people keeping it in their medicine cabinet, keeping it in their drawers. And when young adults want to experiment, it's a lot easier to get opioids out of a medicine cabinet than it is to get alcohol from a corner store. So pharmacists can really take the lead in circumventing some of those prescriptions and pushing people to ibuprofen or to hot-cold therapies, physical solutions instead that would also be an enormous boon to stop the flood of new addictions and let us learn more about how to deal with the people that are trying to wean and as a totally separate exercise
1: Dr. Amy Baxter thank you so much for being part of this um, pharmacist and physician opioid collaborative and digging into pain management Um, we would very much like to have you return, and as I said before we started recording, get you tied in with several of our leading uh, pain experts who are pharmacists in the in the field of of specific conditions where uh, pain is part of pain management is part of their treatment. Um, I really enjoyed this. If you're listening and you want to connect with Dr. Baxter, please go in the show notes. Her link uh, to LinkedIn will be there, as well as you can go to paincarelabs.com. Once again, that's paincarelabs, L A B S dot com. Amy, thank you so much.
0: Pleasures online. Thank you so much, Tom.